But I pray that you would forgive us for being distracted by, by life, God. Lord, you deserve our attention. Lord, you deserve our worship. You deserve our praise. Lord, we acknowledge you, God, and we love you. I'm going to give you all like 30 seconds. In the midst of all this music, when worship can be noise, in the midst of all this stuff, focus on God. Ask him to prepare your heart to hear his word as we worship, we hear his word spoke. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And that's in his name I pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated. Amen. Good to see you this morning. Um, if you want to grab your Bibles and, and put a thumb in a couple of different places for me, we're going to start in Romans chapter 11. Um, then you might put a thumb in Philippians chapter 2, Romans 11, Philippians chapter 2, and then back in Romans chapter 3. So those three places is where we're going to be. Romans 11, Philippians 2, back to Romans 3. Um, Okay, so if you've caught us midway, I would encourage you to grab the podcast and make sure you catch up with us because this is kind of coming in on the back end of this series we're doing on the gospel. And so we have spent three weeks trying to define what it means to be um, lost, what it means to be religiously lost, and then what it means to be saved. And so we've covered a lot of ground. I'd encourage you to to jump into that. Um, So this morning, we're trying to unpack a massively big truth. Massively big. And so um, I want to encourage you just off the cuff this morning um, to not be a passive listener. Like you've got to be engaged and, and following this morning or you might walk out of here thinking, what did he just say? All right. So I'm just encouraging you to make sure you're an active listener with me. Um, okay. So uh, I don't know how many of you guys have seen Avatar. Any Avatar people? Okay, some of you. Now, let me just say off the cuff, just as a preface to this avatar illustration, that it is totally pantheistic. You know what I'm saying? Like, it is not a good spirituality. It is a spirituality built on something not biblical. So the worldview, all of that is different. With that preface, now here we go on Avatar, right? And so I watched Avatar about a month ago. Um, went with the Boydsons. We had kind of a night out. Uh, three hours of, are you serious? I mean, I left there thinking, that is awesome. Now, I don't know how many of you guys had that same experience. And here's why. It's not because the plot was good. It's not because it was pantheistic. It's not because of any of those reasons. I mean, the plot is very normal, right? You've got um, imminent danger. You've got a hero, and he saves the day and gets the girl, right? I mean, it could be 14 billion different movies. So it's not that the plot was great. Um, it's that when you're watching this movie, first of all, it's in 3D, kind of neat, right? Um, big blue people are everywhere. Right? Big, the, the earth or the little planet that they're on has these brilliant, bright colors, just kind of a crazy thing. There's all these wild animals on it. Like some of these animals, you can shoot them with big guns and it doesn't hurt them. I mean, it's crazy stuff. You've got these big birds that they fly on. I mean, it's, it's a neat. You, okay, so I walk out of here thinking that was well worth three hours. 
I mean, if I'm going to spend three hours, that was well worth three hours of my time. Okay, now, um, that night I called my dad and I said, Dad, I, I think you got to go watch Avatar. Why don't you take Mom on a date? Go, go watch the movie. He buys in, right? He goes and watches Avatar. He, we kind of talk, kind of reconvene the next day. Here's how that conversation goes the next day. Can you tell me why any sane person would spend three hours watching that movie? Can I, literally it went? Can you give me one reason that that's a good idea? I'm like Red Bird, the riding it. All right, I mean it's awesome. Okay, now, now here's here's what struck me in the middle of that is how two people can can watch the exact same thing, and one can think, "Gosh, that was neat," and the other thinks, "You have got to be an idiot to watch that," right? And so we can read the same things, and one says that is beautiful poetry. And the other says, who writes that? I mean, we can see the same thing and one of us might say it's beautiful. And the other one will look at the exact same thing and say, that is nasty ugly. Okay, now when it's Avatar, no big deal, right? Like when we're talking Avatar, who cares really if I think it's great, my dad thinks it's insane. Okay, so when we apply that to the Bible, we've got a major issue. Like when we can look at the Bible and, and some of us see this thing gleaming from it and, and others of us miss it, then we've got a massive problem. Okay, now, now here's the thing. I think it happens all the time as we read the Bible. And, and let me just kind of give you a, a question that kind of gets at the heart of this to illustrate this. If I said, what is the gospel about? What's the goal of the gospel? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Now, before you answer that question, I just want you to know, you need to be careful because your first answer reveals how you look at the scriptures, how you look at God and how you look at the universe. Your first answer to that question means everything. Okay, so here's what I'm, I think there's two lens by which you can look at the Bible. Okay, we'll call lens number one, a really man-centered lens. That when we look at the Bible, our first response to everything is for our sake. So why did God do that? Because of us. Why did God do that? Because he loves us. Why did God do Because he wants to save. Okay, so it's this man-centered approach to the world and to the universe and to the scriptures. I mean, we will sing along with Dub Smith. If you're like 1990s in the youth group, you know that's Michael W. Smith, right? Okay, so we would sing along with Dub Smith, right? That crucified, laid behind the stone. You live to die, rejected and alone. Like a rose, trampled on the ground, right? You know the song. Here we go. Okay, now all this is good so far. I mean, we're trampling the rose. We're doing... Comes to the last phrase, you took the fall. I mean, this is Jesus on the cross. He takes the fall. And then here's the last phrase. And you thought of me. Okay, we're still okay. I mean, I'm still okay with the song right now. But now we are about to totally jump ship and we're about to put a man-centered view of the universe on. You thought of me, here's the last phrase in that chorus, above all. That the heart of the cross is man. That the reason God went to the cross is for us. That the, okay, now when it says above all, we're talking ultimate sense. Like there is a sense that we would say, yeah, he went for us. But when you use the word above all, you are saying that the ultimate reason, like the highest reason 
above everything else is, for us, he did it. Okay, I've had several epiphanies. Y'all ever had one of those moments where you're like, oh, that's how that works, right? You ever had, okay, so I've had a few of those moments in life. Um, one of those um, came in the seventh grade. Okay, there's this moment when I'm sitting kind of over in this part of an auditorium, and a guy gives a good gospel presentation, a good God-centered gospel presentation. And I look for the first time and say, I'm in. I want the God of that gospel. Okay, that was this major epiphany of the world is now forever different. Okay, another one happened a few years later when I, like I learned, this came right after God saved me, okay, right? So I learned this fact that cats are evil. I don't know if I've learned that one yet. Right? Okay, so uh, that's the second one. Now, now here's, here's been probably since my salvation, since a seventh grader, sitting over there in a the sanctuary. This has been the second biggest epiphany of life. That God does not revolve around me. That I revolve around God. See, there's this second way that you can look at the scriptures that is God-centered. So when we're trying to figure out what is the motive, what is the heartbeat of God, when we're going to use this term above all to describe anything God is doing, how are we going to answer that? Okay, we can answer it with a really man-centered approach, or we can come over here and say, there is a totally different way to look at the scriptures and the universe that keeps God right in the center of everything he's doing. And so we're going to answer this above all question that the reason God does it all is for the glory of God, to display his worth and works to the world. That's the reason God does everything he does. Totally different way of looking at the universe, the scriptures, and God. Okay, so with that said, here's my goal this morning. My goal is to help us unpack the goal of the gospel and to make the case for lens number two, that the goal of the gospel in an ultimate sense, in an above all sense, is the glory of God. That's what it displays for the world to see, the wonder and the works of our great God and King. And then it's going to be a plea with you at the end to give your life to it. Okay, that, that's the heart. So let me, let me jump back into this question. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Here's my problem with, I think, a lot of our answers to that question. Is our first response isn't a biblical response. Our first response is, well, okay, on the cross, God, God redeemed me. Okay, on, on the cross, I, God absorbed the wrath of God. He exhausted, that's what propitiation means, like this new vocabulary of the cross that we've been learning. Okay, so he exhausted the wrath of God for me on the cross. Okay, on the cross, Jesus justifies me, right? And so he pays the penalty of God for us. Okay, and listen, all those things are right. The Bible says all of those things, but listen to this. The Bible says more than those things. The Bible just doesn't say that. It doesn't leave it at that. The Bible affirms all of those, but adds an ultimate sense to it. The Bible affirms all of these truths here, but gives this bigger umbrella, this first response to it that's not that. Okay, now here's my angst this morning. I think you can preach the gospel like we've been doing for the last three weeks, and I think you can do that like we have done and demean the beauty of the gospel rather than displaying the beauty of the gospel. I think we can preach it in such a way that we strip the beauty of the gospel. Like we strip it from its white, beautiful garments and in place, put rags on it. 
And if our first response to the goal of the gospel is wrong, that's what we do. We rob it of its power in our lives. Okay, it would be like this. This is maybe an illustration for you with it. It would be like me holding a 10-carat diamond up this morning. I mean, it's a rock, right? I mean, that thing is worth more than I am. Okay, so we hold this 10-carat diamond up, and then we put it in the light. And when the light hits it, it bursts with a thousand different rays coming out of it. And so, so I take the diamond, the light hits it, rays are all across the room, and I start picking out these rays. Okay, do you see this red ray? And I explain this red ray, what it is, what it's doing, what it's there for. Okay, then I, I say, do you, see the, do you see the green one? Is that not beautiful? And we explain the green one. Do you see the blue one? Do you see the aqua one? Do you see all of these nuances, all of these rays bursting forth from the diamond? And you know what's real easy to do? is to so fix our attention on the rays that we lose sight of the beauty of the diamond. And I think that's how most gospels are preached. Totally focused in on the rays, losing sight of the beauty of the diamond of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, Romans chapter 11, here we go. Okay, so Romans, here's the theme of Romans, Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Okay, now here's what Paul's about to do. He's going to spend 11 chapters unfolding the gospel and the implications of the gospel. I mean, it is, some people would refer to, to the book of Romans as the Mount Everest, the highest peak of the Bible. Okay, so it is kind of the Bible contained in 16 chapters. That's the book of Romans. Okay, so in Romans 1, you've got the theme. He lays it out. Romans 1 through 3 is showing a desperate but accurate condition of mankind. That we are all sinful glory robbers. That's who we are, what we do. Romans 3 gives God's good, merciful, gracious response in sending Jesus to justify and redeem. Okay, then Romans 4 and 5 unpacks this idea of faith. Romans 6 through 8, this idea of what it means to walk in holiness. And then you get to 9 through 11. And this is where you kind of leave base camp. And you kind of walk into the high altitudes of God's sovereignty. And how he works over man's salvation. It presents some real rough edges to God that aren't real comfortable for us. It's, it's intended to humble us. A lot of people lose their lives right there in that Romans 9 through 11. All right. Okay, then you get to the end of Romans chapter 11. And Paul is looking back. He's got in view the 11 chapters he's just unpacked the gospel. He's got that in view when he gets to the end part of Romans 11 verse 33. And he's going to start speaking in poetry. A little bit out of the norm for Paul. Okay, he starts to unfold some poetry here in kind of response to what he has seen. If you've got an NIV, it might say above that, this is a doxology. Doxology means glory statement. So Paul is looking at the gospel, what he's just unpacked and saying, this is the response, this is my glory statement. Here is the poetry that overflows from what I've just written. Verse 33, starts like this. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Here's what Paul's saying. The depths of God are inexhaustible. You, you cannot get, to, you can know things about God, but you can never exhaust God. The smartest of us in here can spend our life trying to know God and never know it all. That, that's what he's saying. That you can never get to the bottom of Jesus, of the gospel of God. You cannot get to the bottom of it. The depths of the riches and the wisdom of God, specifically in context as he deals with salvation. It's beyond us. Okay, he goes on, he uses this word, unsearchable. 
Okay, so he's saying, listen, you can get lost in here. I mean, you can take your flashlight and the GPS with the little lady speaking to you out of it, and you can get lost in the unsearchable mind of God. That's how big it is. I mean, the depths of it are, are, you can't plumb the bottom. Anytime you get to the top of one peak of truth, you raise your gaze above the horizon and you see you're just in the foothills of the mountains. Okay, that's the picture here. Okay, then he uses this word inscrutable. Like his ways are, if you've got NIV, it's going to say untraceable. That you cannot copy and fathom and follow the ways and the judgments of God. You can't do it. So here's Paul's first statement. I'm unpacking the gospel. Here's my glory statement. The depths of the riches and the wisdom of God. He goes on, verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord? So he's just reiterating this point of, You cannot get to the bottom. You can spend your life knowing things about God. The Bible tells us things about God, but you can never know the the mind. You cannot get to the bottom of this. It is like a bottomless ocean. Okay, that's the mind of God. So, okay, you can get in your submersible little vehicle rated to like 4,000 feet, and you can go down, and and you can plumb the depths. But here's what God's saying. You can be 4,000 feet down, and you're still on the surface. You're still in the shallow end of my mind. Okay, and then he throws out this rhetorical question. Who has been his counselor? Uh, Who's been the counselor of God? Okay, so this kind of takes me back to my first initial days of marriage here. There's a lot to learn for a guy in the first initial days, right? I came from fraternity house, okay? 65 guys living in one house. Is that ever a good idea? Seriously. I mean, there's no way that can be a good idea. Okay, so when I get married, um, I don't even know a laundry bin exists. And so w- when I'm going to take a shower, I'm gonna do, I mean, the clothes just kind of go on the floor. I mean, that, that's where the clothes go. That's where your shirt goes. That's where your pants go. That's where everything goes, right there. That, that's the sp- Okay, and Laura is like, what, what is that? And I'm like, listen, that looked a lot better than the like one-week-old pizza boxes they used to cover, all right? I mean, that, that's where the clothes go. And I remember her asking this question, something to the effect of, like, does, does that go there? Rhetorical question, right? So I'm like, yeah. I mean, where, where else would, would they go? I mean, this, this, is, this is, yeah, that's right. This, this, is, this is where clothes go. Okay, that's when it hit me. She's not asking a question. She's making a statement. This is not where the clothes, that's where she, this is not where you put your clothes. I learned a really valuable invention that day. The laundry bin actually exists, right? Okay, it's not like the Loch Ness Monster. It's there. So, okay, so Paul's looking at the mind of God and he's asking a rhetorical question. Who's going to be his counselor? God needs no authority. God needs no advice from us. Oh, the depths of his mind. And you know what we have a tendency to do, especially when things go bad for us, is to raise our fist in rebellion and say, how can you? I think you need some help on this one. I don't think you know what you're doing in this one. And Paul's saying only a fool would say that. I mean, us giving counsel to God is like a two-year-old trying to string three words together, giving you advice, right? And Paul's saying, who are you to give counsel to God? Okay, let's keep rolling here. 
verse 35. Or who has given a gift to him that he may be repaid? A few years ago, we took a mission trip to Mexico. Bar none, the craziest trip I've ever been on. I probably should have gotten fired for that trip, right? And so here's the first maybe indication that things were going to get crazy. We get to the border, and me and the staff that I was working with, we knew that they told us that all you need to bring is your birth certificate and driver's license. That's all you need. But we just went ahead and told people just because, I mean, we're going to try to be over the top. Go ahead and bring your passport. We'll just make sure. Everybody brings their passport except the two other adults that we brought. So we get to the border, and they're like, no. I I don't know what you're doing with the driver's license and birth. I don't know who told you that, but you need your passport. And we're like, great. This is wonderful. A trip into Mexico, not just into 10 hours into Copper Canyon. That's where we're going. And my two adults, they're, they're out of the trip. Okay, this is when you go to plan B, right? When you get into desperate situations, you pull out all the stops. And I, mean, I felt scandalous. I felt like the SWAT team was going to fly in and shoot us all in the middle of this. Okay, so they walk up with $20 to this guy. Listen, I know I don't have my, my passport, but here's $20. The guy winks at him, says, that'll do just fine. Signs the papers, off we go into Mexico. Now, now let me tell you something. You know what's terrifying about God? You can't bribe him. You know what's terrifying about him? You can't bring out your $20 when you're in a desperate situation and pay him off. He doesn't give you the wink and, okay, we'll just kind of send you on your... He doesn't go that route. That's not how God operates. And Paul's saying, who are you going to give him a gift that's going to pay him off, that's going to put him in debt to you? You can't do it. And you know what? There's a tendency in all of us to wish that we could. I mean, if you don't think that, just go back to when you're a seventh or an eighth grader and your hand got caught in the cookie jar. Last week, I kind of revealed one of those moments, vandalizing, right? My hand's in the cookie jar. And you know what we say when our hand's in the cookie jar and we got caught? God, I will give you my life. You've got me for the next 80 years. Just get me out of this, right? I mean, that's us. As if we're going to bribe God with a $20 bill. I mean, it's God saying in Psalms, I own every animal of the forest and the cattle on a thousand hills. What are you going to give me that I don't own? You're going to offer me you. I own you. I cannot be bribed. That's our God speaking name. Okay, so let's keep going here. Verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. So he's making a sweeping statement that all things, not just good, all things are ultimately from him, through him and to him. So all things find their source in the hand of a sovereign God. They all start with that. And they're through him. He is the sustainer of all things and they are to him. All things are going to end at the foot of Jesus someday everything okay now he's about to give the reason god does what he does here it is to him be i just encourage you maybe to underline this highlight this do whatever you have to do to make sure this sticks out to you to him be glory forever to him be the glory forever 
That is, I mean, it's Paul kind of raising the shade so we can see inside the center of the house. And he's saying, listen, you want to know the motive of God? You want to know the reason God does what he does in an ultimate sense and an above all sense? The reason he does what he does is for the glory of God. That's the reason. That is the motive. That is at the center of the heart of God. God is all about the glory of God. That is what God, that's what motivates him. That, that is the point. This is the heartbeat of your God, the glory of God, to display his works, his wonder, his greatness, his majesty, his brilliance, his perfection, his beauty to the world so every nation, tongue, and tribe can see it. That's the heart of God. This is the above all reason for everything he does. That's it, the glory of God. Paul's saying this is the point. God is about the glory of God. So, okay, I'm trying to make the case here for lens number two, right? And so here's what I want to do. I want to try to bring in the scope of scripture on this. And I, I just put off, and I could, I think I've got maybe 20 verses here. And I could, suppl- I could take all of these 20 out and put 20 more in. And then another 20 in, and then another 20 in. I just picked 20 verses out to give you the scope of the Bible. So you'll get a biblical picture that God is about the glory of God displaying his worth to the world. That is the motive. So let me just run down through these. I think you can maybe call these glory texts. Just specific examples of God saying, this is why I act in the ultimate sense. This is the reason behind it. I'm going to post these online so you don't have to worry about taking notes on them. I I want you just to listen and look at the screen. So God is saying, I'm about my glory. That's the reason. Okay, now his glory can be said a couple different ways in the Bible. It might be said um, for my name's sake. To exalt me. Okay, there's uh, several different ways that would say it. All getting at the same idea. That God is about the glory of God. So let me just kind of run through about 15 or 20 of these. Okay, this idea that God is central to God. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake. Not for you. For my name's sake. Ultimate sense. I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. That I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Verse 11. For my name's sake. For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. In the book of Ezekiel alone, there are 20 references to God saying, here's the reason I do it. For my name's sake. My glory. That's the reason. Man was created for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, verse 6 and 7. I say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's your purpose. That's my purpose. We are called to be reflectors of the glory of God. That's why he created us. Isaiah 49, 3, God called Israel for his glory. And he said to me, your servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Some versions are going to say, in whom I will display my splendor. Okay, the reason he rescued Israel from Egypt, Psalms 106. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. That's the reason he saved them. 
Okay, let's keep going. God raised up Pharaoh. This is a little more difficult. Romans 9, 17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God destroys Pharaoh. Here's the reason. Exodus 14, 4 and 18. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and will pursue him pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. Verse 18 coming down. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gotten glory over Pharaoh. God spares Israel in the wilderness. Ezekiel 20 verse 14. But I acted for the sake of my name. That's why I did it. Um, 2 Samuel 7, 23, God gave Israel victory in the promised land. He moved the inhabitants of the promised land out. Here's the reason. And who is like your people Israel, the nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making a name for himself and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out your people. God saved Jerusalem from attack, 2 Kings 19, 34. Why? I will defend the city and save it for my own sake. That's why I act. This is the bottom line, the overarching thing, the above all reason. God restored Israel from exile, uh, Ezekiel 36. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. That's why he's doing what he's doing. Psalms 23, 1 through 3. This is God's provision. Why does God provide for his people and lead his people? Here it is. Um, Psalms 23, a very well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake, the mission of Jesus. John 17, 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him, God who sent me, that person is true. God is, or Jesus is about the glory of the Father. Why do we do good works as believers and followers of Jesus? Matthew 5, 16, 1 Peter 2, 12. Here's the reason, so that people will see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus endured his final hours on the cross. Why? For God's glory. Look what it says, verse 28 there, John 12. Father, glorify your name. God forgives sin for his own for his own name's sake, or Psalms 25, 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it's great. Everything we do as believers is supposed to be to the glory of God. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. We do it all for the glory of God. Habakkuk, he's going to say it this way. Here's the plan of God in the universe, Habakkuk 2. He's going to say, it is so, as the waters cover the sea, the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. That's the plan of God on planet earth and in the universe. Last one, heaven. What is heaven about? It is about the glory of God. Listen to this verse in Revelation 21. The 12 gates were uh, were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. Welcome to the mission of God. The the, abundance. Number one agenda. Number one on the list. This is what God is about. This is his aim on the planet. The glory of God. This is the big picture. Okay, now here's our problem. Our problem is that God says, I'm about my glory, displaying my worth to the world. Yet we are glory thieves. We can't help but grabbing for it. We can't help but reaching for it and closing our fist around it and crowning ourselves king. 
calling ourselves the sovereign. We can't help but elevating other things to, to God's rightful place. Even good things, even family, even sex, even money, even, uh, even good God's gifts to us. We can't help but putting them in the central seat, giving them the glory, displaying their word to the world. Ultimately, sin is robbing the glory that is due God. That is what sin is. The Bible is going to call us glory thieves. That's what, that's what it means to be sinful people. We reach for, grab for the glory when it's God's. So how does God respond? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Go ahead and flip there. How does God respond to his glory thieves? We'll answer that and then look at why he does it. Why he came. Why he died on the cross. What, what is the diamond? Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Okay, so this is God's response to glory thieves. I mean, this is his response to those people he created who have taken up arms, made themselves ready for war, and hijacked the glory of God. Here's his response. Philippians 2, verse 6. Who? We're talking about Jesus here. Though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. Okay, so the New Testament screams, Jesus is God. That, that Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. But yet, here is God's response to his glory thieves. I'll lay it down. I'll lay my rights down and come among them. You, you know what's amazing to me when I read the New Testament? That God never pulls the God card out. I mean, I would pull the God card out. I mean, they start pulling out my beard. I'll promise you, this is what's coming out real quick. I am God. I mean, I'm saying that right off the cuff, right? I mean, one hair out, that, that is coming out. I mean, this idea of I am God with just the sound of my voice. I can break your arm, neck, and back, pull your finger out of socket, and make like water drip on your head slowly for the rest of eternity. That would come out really quickly if it's me. Okay, God never pulls it out. Jesus never pulls it out. He, he says, I, I, I'm going to lay down rights. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Response to glory thieves. But Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. See, I mean, glory thieves, us, like, we grab for the glory. We want to make nothing ourselves into something. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm making myself nothing for the glory thieves. I mean, it's, it's as if he's saying, uh, in response, nothing. Okay, I'm going to bend down, pick up the towel, and serve. Let's, let's keep reading. But made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men. Okay, so God is in heaven, just fine. In response, comes down to earth, wraps himself in human flesh. So when you hit him, it hurts. If you cut him, like he's going to bleed, right? So he is wrapped on human flesh. That, that's the response coming out of this. As the great theologian uh, Will Ferrell says, he's an 8.6 pound little. Okay, you get the picture, right? Okay, so verse 8, here we go. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on the cross. I mean, this is the gospel, right? I mean, this, this is Paul saying, your glory thieving rats and Jesus made himself nothing, humbled himself, and was crucified, slayed. Paid the penalty of your sin, purchased the people of God, exhausted the wrath of God. I mean, these beautiful rays bust through the gospel. Okay, now he's going to give the reason, the result and the reason. Verse 9. Here's the result. Therefore, this is the result of the gospel. Therefore, big word, connects what he just said. In response to the glory thieves, God has been slayed in response. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those running toward God, away from God, or anywhere in between, all the knees are going to bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Either we get to do it now willfully and joyfully or then in terror. But all of us, it's all going to end at the foot of Jesus, the feet of Jesus. And here's the reason. Okay, now we're back to the reason. This is why God did it. The overarching above all reason goes like this. To the glory of God the Father. The gospel is about the glory of God. This is the first answer biblically. There's a lot of other answers to it, but this is the above all answer. This is the supreme answer. This is the reason God was slayed on the cross to display his worth, his majesty, his greatness to the world. That's the gospel. Okay, we end with Romans chapter 3. We'll wrap it up. Go ahead and flip back to Romans 3. Give two truths about the gospel and then we're done. Romans 3 verse 23. For all have sinned. Okay, I mean, we've, we've been here a lot over the last three weeks. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I mean, that's the idea of being hopelessly sinful. Glory thieves. We can't help but reach for it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Truth one of the gospel. God is the giver of the gospel. Justified is passive. Here's what that means. Justification is something done to us. Not something we do. We are the recipients of it. God is the initiator. God is in his sovereign grace. He is the initiator. The giver of the gospel. That's why it says it's grace, and that's why it says it's a gift. Because God can withhold it. He doesn't have to give it. I mean, God's got every right to keep his grace from the glory thieves. God is the giver of the gospel. Here's truth number two. Okay, here's the next part here. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He purchased us. Jesus bought us on the cross, right? Okay, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation, right? So he's exhausted the wrath of God for us on the cross to be received by faith. Now, he is about to give the diamond. Okay, he's just, he's just unfolded the rays. Propitiation, justification, all of these beautiful rays of the gospel. But here's the diamond. Here's the 10 carat rock worth everything. This was, and circle these words, to show the cross is meant to show something not our worth the cross is meant to show 
God's righteousness. That's what it's meant to show. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26 says it again. It was, circle this, to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in him. The goal of the gospel is the glory of God. The goal of the gospel is God. That's what it's about. Okay, so let's finish our definition to make our definition of the gospel biblical and kind of bringing in the whole scope here. I'm going to read it and then we're going to finish it with seven or eight new words on it. The just and gracious God of the universe looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God forever. Those are the rays, the beautiful rays of the gospel. Now here's the diamond. And it's all for the glory of God. That's why he did it. That's the big picture of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is bigger than me. It's bigger than you. The goal of the gospel is God's glory. That's it. Now, now here's what I love about this. The effect of the gospel on you and I, this is what that gospel for the glory of God does to us. It turns us in or from, it, it transforms us from being glory thieves. Thieves of God's glory to being great reflectors of God's glory. That is what the cross does when it's preached this way. When we get a picture of God that says his aim in the universe is his glory, then the gospel all of a sudden has this new effect on us. Now we are not living for us. We are living for the glory of God. It transforms us. It changes us. We lay down our arms. We no longer want to hijack the glory of God. We want to lay it all down and we want to run after and join in God's aim for the universe. That's what the gospel does. The gospel makes us say with Paul. I, I, one of my favorite passages in all the scripture, Philippians 1.20. Here's what Paul's going to say here. God, will you give me sufficient courage for what? To make a name for myself? To make sure I get the applause, Paul saying this, to make sure I, Paul, get the attention of the world? No. God, give me sufficient courage so that now, as always, you, Christ, will be exalted in my body. That's what the gospel does. Turns us from glory thieves to great reflectors of the gospel. And here's how Paul ends it. God, give me sufficient courage so that now, as always, you will be exalted in my body whether by life or by death. The gospel makes us joy-filled, radical risk-takers for the glory of God. That's what the gospel's meant to do. And you know my fear with the man-centered gospel that it's all about you? Is it will strip the power of the gospel from making you that. And it strips the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is meant to make us sing with the psalmist in Psalms 115. Not to me, O Lord, not to me, but to your name be the glory. And if I have one prayer for the people of Stonegate, our church, it would be that we would not be glory thieves in here. We would not reach for the glory ourselves, but that we would join in with God in the aim of the universe. And this place would be about making God's name known among the nations, every nation, tongue, and tribe. That we would be the sort of people, daddies in here, let me plead with you, daddies, that you would be the sort of people that make God's glory known in your family. 
that parents, we would be the sort of people that make God's glory known in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, everywhere we go, that we would join in God's aim in the universe. Teenagers, that we would wake up and go to school for the glory of God. It gives new dimension to all of life. May we be that. May we sing with the gospel and say, it is about you, God, and it makes us about you. May we join in the joy-filled pursuit of making God's glory famous. Amen? Let's pray. Here's why it's so precious for God to be the goal of the gospel. Because when he's the goal of the gospel, he's also the gift of the gospel. The gospel's primary aim is not to make your sins forgiven. The gospel's primary aim is not to necessarily exhaust the wrath of God. Like that's part of it, that's a ray. But when the gospel is about God, first and foremost, then he becomes the beautiful gift. When we get the gospel, we don't just get the rays that shine through it, but we get the diamond, the priceless pearl. And if you're in here today and and you have never submitted your life to the gospel, if you've never joined in in the joy-filled pursuit of God's aim in the universe, It's why you were created. It's why God spoke you into being. And if that's never happened, if you've never joyfully submitted your life to the gospel, I want to plead with you. He is the gift. The gospel is so precious because we get Jesus in it. So I want to plead with you this morning to take Jesus. If the grace of God is moving in your heart, You wouldn't walk out on that, but you would say, Jesus, I want you. And if that's you this morning, on on our little contact card there, you'll see a box that says, um, I'd like to take the next step in in learning how to make Jesus my Savior, my Lord, the gospel. I'd I'd encourage you to click on that. That'll just start a dialogue between us. We'll email, we'll, we'll line up coffee this week, and we'll talk through that. Okay, so for the rest of us in this room, The universe is about the glory of God. The question is, are you in it? Are you you joyfully running with the aim? Have you laid down your arms and have you taken up the purpose? This is what the universe is about. This is what God is about. So I want to plead with you. The glory of God is worth your life. It is worth your last breath. It is worth your next heartbeat. And I want to plead with you to make your life count for the glory of God. May the grace of God so hit this place, this church, that it would pull us out of lukewarmness. It would pull us out of just a numbness, a complacency, a lethargic 
way of looking at the world, a half-hearted attempt for the glory of God. And may the grace of God make our heart explode for the glory of God. May the grace of God give us great ambitions for God's glory on the planet. May we be willing to lay down everything for his great name. Oh, I pray that over us. I plead with God that you would do that. And here's how we want to end today. The band's going to play a new song for us. I'm going to read for you the lyrics. Now, with your eyes closed, let me just read these over you. Then we'll stand and we're going to sing glory to God. That's the gospel. That's our life. That's our work. That's our home. That's our marriage. That's our parenting. That's the way we submit to parenting. That is everything. The song's called Glory to God Forever. Here's the lyrics. Before the world was made, before you spoke it to be, you were the king of kings. Yes, you are. Yes, you were. And now you're reigning still, enthroned above all things. Angels and saints cry out, and we join with them as we sing. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to our great God forever. Creator God, you gave me breath so I could praise your great and matchless name all my days, all my days. So let my whole life be a blazing offering, a life that shouts and sings the greatness of our King. Glory to God, glory to God, glory to our God forever. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Take my life and let it be yours. God, I pray that for us, over us. God, will you do that in us? God, will you give us a passion for your great name? May you give us God-saturated, gospel-centered ambitions to make your name known. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand?